Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Friends, Moderna joined Pfizer yesterday in announcing the development of an effective COVID-19 vaccine. Trials indicate that Moderna's vaccine is 94.5% effective. Uh, it's also notable that its delivery is different than the uh, two, two shots necessary uh, for the Pfizer vaccine. I'm also understanding it's not required to be held in the extreme cold storage Uh, And that makes delivery options globally uh, different. Um, So phrases in the media yesterday, uh, light at the end of the tunnel, hope rising. These were the some of the common statements. And so I think that should give us pause. First of all, we're thrilled, uh, like everyone else, that um, there are going to be multiple options um, for effective vaccines for COVID-19. And that's wonderful. Um, but I want to focus in on the word hope. And I want to ask you, does your hope rest on the development of a vaccine for COVID-19? On what does your hope rest? And I'm not suggesting that people should not have uh, hope in terms of the terrestrial sense of the word. But it does give us as a Christians an opportunity to have a a larger conversation. So, On what does your hope rest could also be asked, on whom does your hope rest? And I'd lift up Romans chapter 5, again, the first five verses. I know that I have uh, talked about these verses recently on several occasions, and that's because um, I'm soaking in them right now. Not only soaking them in, but soaking in them. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, you could camp out right there for a long time. We have peace with God. Talks about how that happens. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. In other translations, it says hope never disappoints because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When you talk about hope, when you think about hope, when you uh, consider where your hope rests, I encourage you as a Christian to consider Jesus and to consider how The hopelessness that people find themselves in does give us an opportunity, a doorway, an entry point into a conversation about the reality of a hope that is persistent, even in the midst of suffering, and what it looks like as a person of faith to endure with character, uh, a character that produces hope. 
The vaccine news drove financial markets higher. We saw the Dow Jones Industrial Average close yesterday at an all-time high, 29,950. It seems notable to me that in light of uh, the global pandemic, which has been wreaking havoc on the U.S. and other economies around the world, the Dow has risen more than 12,000 points since the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And, And so... In terms of things that history is going to remember about this president, history is going to remember uh, this, this um, this particular season during which the Dow rose some 12,000 points uh, in in four years, uh, closing yesterday at twenty nine nine fifty. Hurricane Iota, uh, we talked about it briefly yesterday. Um, she was a fast moving category five storm weakened to a Category 4 just before making landfall in northern Nicaragua Nicaragua yesterday. Marks the second time in two weeks that impoverished Central American country has been struck by a major hurricane. Flooding uh, is now, uh, I mean, you know, there's just, well, there's massive inland flooding, um, and the rain is going to continue all the way across uh, Central America. Flash floods are expected, potential mudslides. Um, be mindful of the fact that people in these countries live in what we would consider very substandard conditions, many of them on the sides of mountains, um, which were already saturated with rain, and dense populations live below them, concentrated in the valleys. There are um, there are potentially really horrific headlines in the coming days out of Central America, and I just want us to be mindful of that, be praying for um be praying for people there and be prepared to respond. All right, Mark Caleb Smith is waiting in the wings. He's up next. He and I are going to, well, we're going to take it to Georgia. We got Georgia on the mind. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I said a Georgia. All right, joining me now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, but we could just spend a few minutes listening to Ray Charles sing about Georgia. Not a bad way to spend a few minutes. Right? That's not a bad way. No, that's such a great voice. That's what I got. You know, all right. So let's talk about Georgia. Uh, It's been almost two weeks um, since Election Day. Um, and we have uh, a runoff in Georgia, and it's kind of odd because we have, first of all, two Senate seats being voted on at the same time. That's unusual. Um, and Georgia has some some rules that other states don't have in terms of uh, the vote that's required. So talk with us about what's happening in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Two Senate seats by itself is is unusual, but Georgia's system is a little bit different uh, in Georgia, you need to get secure 50 percent of the vote in the general election. Uh, and if no candidate gets 50 percent, then they have a runoff <clears throat> that takes place in January. And so uh, in both of these special in both of these Senate elections in November, neither of the none of the candidates got 50 percent. So we end up with two of them going to runoff mode. So this is important because uh, it gets rid of all the other you know minor party or other candidates that are on the ballot. So no libertarians. Uh, no other third parties, no other pre- people there. It's just the top two finishers. And so even though we have results from the first two races to look at, it isn't necessarily clear what's going to happen in this next one because a whole lot of things will be different 
because different people will be on the ballot. Talk about who can vote, um, because, you know, there have been people who've suggested, hey, a bunch of people should just, you know, move to Georgia and go register to vote. That's not how this is going to work. No, that's not how this is going to work. I mean, you have to be registered for the first election because it's really a, a holdover from this first election. It's a continuation uh, of this election that took place in November. So you just can't move there and register to vote. Uh, but there will be no shortage of voters, I think. I mean, we saw a huge voter turnout in November. Uh, now, it is true, though, special elections and weird timing elections like this one, turnout tends to go down a little bit. But as you know, the the hype around these races is so big uh, because of the stakes involved, right? The control of the U.S. Senate is on the line here. Uh, and if the Democrats can manage to win both of these seats, then they'll have a split U.S. Senate. And of course, with the a presumably an incoming Biden administration, then Kamala Harris would break all ties in the Senate. So uh, this is a, a massive election, uh, and we just got done with one. We're going to have another one coming up here soon. All right, let's um, let's also talk about the incoming Congress. Uh, there's some interesting characters who will be well. They're there now um, um, as freshmen. Uh, anticipating what it's going to be like and learning their way around. But there's a there's a wave of women, and it's Republican. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Uh, it's the highest percentage of women in Congress that we've ever seen. Uh, more than a quarter of, of the members of the U.S. House will be female, uh, and almost a quarter of the Senate will be female. We just haven't seen uh, really anything like that. And as you said, we're kind of used to Democratic women doing well to some extent. Uh, we haven't seen quite as many Republican women in these high positions, but uh, Republican women did extraordinarily well in these uh, in these most recent elections. Uh, when you look at all the seats that the Republicans flipped in the House, it looks like a heavy majority of them are going to be done by women. Um, and so the GOP owns most of their gains. Uh, in November within the House to women and the quality of those female candidates. And you know, this is, to some extent, this has been a long time coming. Uh, you know, we've seen women progressively do better throughout all levels of politics. Uh, but it's interesting to see this kind of moment, it looks like, within the Republican Party, uh, where women women become maybe a, a dominant political force, at least in part of the federal government. And it'll be interesting to, to me to see if this really changes how the Republicans do things. Will this change their agenda a little bit? Uh, will this change their tone a little bit, potentially? Will this affect the leadership structure uh, in the House, for example? So uh, it'll be fun to watch it move forward. Um, when you say the leadership structure in the House, you know, tell people what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, the House of Representatives, uh, they have their own sets of leaders. So, you know, of course, we all know about the Speaker of the House that's Nancy Pelosi. She's a Democrat, of course. But Republicans have a minority leader right now. It's Kevin McCarthy. But there is a structure underneath him of people who do things like uh, lobby fellow members of Congress, keep people in line, work on committee assignments. Uh, and so because the House is so large, you know, 435 total members, it has more of a bureaucratic structure that functions in these leadership positions. And women are having more, more and more of an effect on that structure. What that means then is, will they behave differently? Uh, will they approach fellow members differently? I mean, those are the kinds of questions uh, that I'm going to have my eyes open here for for the next couple of years. Um, and, and connecting these two storylines together, when we talk about uh, the the races in Georgia, um, if they were to both go 
um, into the Democratic column, then we would have uh, a majority of Democrats in the Senate. And that matters um, because we would no longer have divided government, which just means things would sail through. But it also uh, it also matters because there's a um, there's a unique function of um, uh, of Mitch McConnell right now in that he determines what what even gets to the floor of the Senate. And so t- talk with us about why it matters which party actually holds the majority in the Senate. Well, I mean, we, <clears throat> the, Congress has been changing a lot during the last couple of decades, not just the Senate, but the House as well. Um, and the leadership in both of those chambers is taking on more and more responsibility to the point where some members of Congress are basically complaining that they've been frozen out of the legislative process. They're no longer really dealing with legislation themselves. They just kind of show up to vote. They show up to committee meetings. But the leadership is making these fundamental choices about when bills will come to the floor, what those bills will look like when they come to the floor. Um, And so, so much has gravitated toward leadership. And right now, Mitch McConnell in the Senate seems to have a pretty iron-fisted control of the GOP in the Senate to the point where he's really controlling the legislative agenda, which affects things like judicial appointments. It affects treaties and ratifications. Um, The Senate really is the bottleneck to some extent to the whole federal structure. It's smaller, it's more deliberative, and McConnell's done a really nice job maintaining power and control within it. Now, we could argue about whether that's good or bad, but he's maintained a lot of control within that chamber. If he continues with that control, then, like you said, we're looking at divided government. McConnell's in a position to where really he can negotiate directly with with, uh, potentially President Biden, and we can see what can get done. It's also true he may treat this like he did with President Obama. Uh, McConnell took pretty much an oppositional approach to Obama and decided it was in his interest to work against Obama as opposed to working with Obama on, on all things. If McConnell determines that's still the case, then we're looking at divided government and we're looking at very little being done substantively, at least within Congress, for the, for the next two years. If Democrats win those two Senate seats in Georgia, like you said, it'll be quite different. Uh, the Democrats have a chance to govern at least a little bit, uh, although some of their more moderate leader, uh, leaders like Joe Manchin has already signaled he's not interested in doing these things like defund the police or get rid of the filibuster uh, or do other radical things in the Senate. And so It'll be more moderate no matter what. It'll just uh, depend on which party's in control. All right. I am talking with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, and uh, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the future of the GOP. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, Mark, let's talk about the future of the GOP. Where um, where do you see this this headed? We, I mean, we are, I think, anticipating a Biden presidency. Um, and so we are anticipating the end of the presidency of Donald J. Trump. Um, are we also anticipating the end of Trumpism and his influence in the party? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, when you said when you tease this is the future of the GOP, it really is the question first is the future of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, is he going to be an important part of the party? Is he going to be sort of the kingmaker of the party? Uh, you know, I'm sitting here in Ohio, and if you've been paying attention to the news yet, the other day, uh, Mike DeWine, our governor, 
said that uh, Joe Biden should be considered the incoming president. And in response, Donald Trump went on Twitter and encouraged people to run against Mike DeWine uh, within the primary for the uh, for, for the Ohio gubernatorial election in two years. And that suggests that Donald Trump is going to want to play a role in these kinds of party decisions uh, moving forward. And if he does, we're going to have to figure out whether that matters. You know, is he going to be able to sit on the sidelines and use social media and use fundraising and other things to really affect the party for the next year, two years, or four years? Or is he going to focus on other things? You know, is he going to go into the media? Uh, is he going to buy a TV network, which has sort of been rumored in some cases? Uh, you know, how he answers that question is going to go a long way to figuring out uh, what this party is going to look like. Um, and of course, as well, we have to see whether people are going to rise up to challenge him. Maybe he will say, you know, I still want to be part of this thing, but that'll inspire some other people to step forward and say, you know what, we're going to have to try to fight against that and see what happens. So I think Trump's future is a big part of it, of course, but there's a lot more going on than just Donald Trump. Um, as we as we watch this transition, as we observe what happens in the in the next few weeks, there are some things that the president is still likely to do, actions he is likely to take. Um, and there are things that uh, a, a, a president-elect Biden and his administration should be doing in preparation for a transition. Um, those appear to be agendas in conflict right now, just by my, you know, yep. casual observation. Right. Yeah, no question about it. And I think, I mean, my sense is when you're reading the tea leaves and, and hearing reports out of the White House, that Donald Trump is coming to the realization that this is over. Um, the legal challenges are falling away. Uh, he's losing in federal court in almost every instance, except for maybe one so far. And that's been a relatively minor victory in Pennsylvania. Um, and so I think the more that settles in, perhaps we'll see uh, Joe Biden in this transition take place. I mean, the biggest thing for me is Biden really needs access to presidential level intelligence Mm -hmm. uh, for daily briefings. He's getting briefings right now, but there are elements that are missing from there that would really only be included in a pres presidential briefing. I think he should be getting those kinds of briefings immediately. Um, and the fact that he's not is really problematic. You know, you, you talked about the virus and the vaccine earlier in the program. Um, he should be getting briefed on that, and he should be able to start working on COVID policy and transition as it relates to COVID, I think, as soon as possible. So, it's a big deal. You know, people might want to minimize it and say, well, you know, inauguration takes place in January. What's the big hurry? But a presidential team is much bigger than just one person stepping into an office after inauguration. We're talking about hundreds of, of selections that need to be made. Some of those that work needs to start being done. There needs to be funding for that work that takes place. And the longer this is delayed, the more complicated it's going to get. Uh, you know, I don't want to play doomsayer here, uh, but there are those who argue that the delayed transition of power uh, after the 2000 election, maybe was partially responsible for some of our intelligence shortcomings all the way up to 9-11. And so these kinds of transitions should take place. They should be speedy. It's for the good of the country, I think. Um, all right. So um, a couple of people who maybe you are watching. I have some uh, freshman members of Congress that I uh, intend to watch. Um, Burgess Owens, retired NFL player, just uh, uh I don't know, the, confirmed his victory in uh, in a Utah race for Congress. Um, I'm going to watch him. I think he's going to be an interesting character in Congress. Madison Cawthorn, 
this um, very young, 25-year-old, uh, paralyzed uh, uh, young man in from uh, from Western North Carolina. He looks like um, quite a character to watch. Marjorie Taylor Greene, we've already been watching her. She's been identified with QAnon. I think she's going to be interesting. I'm also interested to see um, sort of how Elise Stefanik uh, continues um, to operate. Uh, she's an interesting character in Congress to me as well. Who, who are some people you're watching? Uh, I'm going to keep an eye on Ben Sass, the uh, mm-hmm. senator from Nebraska, uh, who has occasionally taken put some criticism toward Donald Trump and also early on said that Joe Biden was president-elect. I think there's a real possibility that Sass is going to emerge as a rival to the president and maybe be one of those Republican leaders who tries to take control of the party back from the president to some extent. Um, he won re-election in, in Nebraska very handily. He actually outperformed Trump pretty dramatically in the state of Nebraska, which suggests he has a great relationship with his constituents. And there's a big part of his constituency that isn't necessarily fond of the president, but is very fond of Senator Sass. And so if more of those kind of senators step forward, then I think you might see some uh, some infighting within the GOP. So he's one I'm going to keep my eye on. Uh, he's also a very thoughtful guy, uh, well-educated, um, and has, I think, the ability to take on more of a national profile. Ben, he's been, you know, on the show. So <laughs> yeah. Good guy. Well, I mean, you wouldn't know. There's no reason that you would know that. But I happen to like him as well. So there you go. I'm putting Ben Sass back on my on my uh, who to watch and and follow, um, you know, more closely list. All right. Mark Caleb Smith, as always, thank you so much. We appreciate the conversations that we get to have with you. Thank you, Carmen. Take care. And thanks to all your listeners. We'll talk to you soon. All right. We're keeping an eye on Georgia. We'll be right back. So scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I want you to ask yourself for just a moment, what if I couldn't hear? And and what if I lived in a community that was illiterate and so I also didn't learn to read? And so even if the Bible is available in my language, I can't access it. I can't hear someone read it and I cannot read it for myself. Well, into that need steps Wycliffe Associates and the development of the Sun translation. That story up next with Lori Jenkins. We'll be right back. As an adult, you've learned to wait. You wait in lines. You wait for the promised phone call. You wait for your favorite TV show. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Even if you and I get antsy from time to time, we've learned how to wait. But there's something inherently difficult about waiting upon God. Have you ever been praying for your teen lately? Are you anxious about how he'll grow up or if she'll ever grow up? Do you find it hard to trust the Lord when your teen breaks all the rules, when she openly defies your directives? Look, relinquishing the outcome and giving up control won't be easy. But have patience with the Lord's sovereign plan. He loves your children even more than you do. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit ParentingTodaysTeens.org.
Well, joining me now, Lori Jenkins. Uh, Lori has had a, a, a number of different roles with Wycliffe Associates. She is currently serving as the program director of the Sun Program. Um, Lori, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's well, I love the mast uh, program that you guys are engaged in, putting Bible translation literally into the hands of people um, around the world uh, to do it themselves. But we're not going to talk about the mast program specifically today. We're going to talk about the Sun program, symbolic universal notation. First of all, let's just start with the need for Bible translation and then the need for a translation for this specific group of people. Okay. So, um, as uh, as you may know, and as many of your listeners may know, there are approximately 7,000 languages in the world. Um, of those 7,000 languages, there are several thousand that still do not have scripture in their heart language. That's the language that they grew up uh, speaking. It's the language that they pray in, the language that they dream in. And um, our goal is to see a Bible in every language by the year 2025. So that's that's the need. That's what we're um, working toward. And um, that's just kind of uh, what God has laid on our heart here at WA. And then when we talk about um, this particular group of people, people who are deaf, blind, or both, this number mm-hmm. was really surprising to me. We're talking about 80 million people around the world who are either deaf, blind, or both. And I've, I've never thought of them as an unreached people group with a, with a specific heart language, but that's really what you're trying to touch on. Exactly. So um, there are about 56, it's an estimated number of about 56 million people in the world who are deaf and do not know their national sign language. So for the deaf population specifically, um, only about 20% of the world's population actually have access to an education. So um, most of those are in the Western, uh, the Western part of the world. And so when you start looking at, um, at this population of people, there are so many of them that they can't read, they can't write, um, they don't know the national sign language. They've had to actually create their own sign language in order to be able to communicate with the people around them, just even just with their family. And so when you think about that population, um, how do you provide scripture to a group of people who don't speak the same language, yet they're in the same area, the same region of the world? So it's a um, it's a question that uh, it, it really bothered us. Uh, how do you provide scripture for 56 million different languages? Um, so, that's so the answer, some, yeah, yeah that's so the answer <laughs> is this, this brilliant idea, literally brilliant idea, sun, symbolic mm-hmm. universal notation. What right. is that? Okay, so sun uh, is a symbolic language. It's an actual language of its own. Um, It has its own grammar structure. It um, has its own way of writing and its own like sound and cadence to it um, as you as you actually read it or you sign it. And so uh, it is a growing language. We're using it to translate scripture, but um, 
it's actually just a, a bunch of of symbols that we've we've drawn and each symbol represents either um, a word or a concept within scripture so if you think of sign language when they translate into sign um, from the spoken word into sign language uh, they they're not signing every single word that you say and many times the sign is not exactly the word that you're saying either it's signing the concept um, sometimes you have to describe things a little bit more in order to get the idea of one word um, that we speak so it's it's a concept-based language just like sign language is and um, so we've taken each concept of scripture and basically drawn a symbol for it and then put it into a uh, sentence form and that's how that's how we we've uh, created it that's how you can read it but if i give you like a symbol of a cup um you know what a cup is and you know what you do with that cup so that cup could represent either the cup itself the object or it could represent the action that you do with that cup it depends on the context of the sentence all right, so I know that um, people who are listening right now, um, some of them, many of them are visual. And so mm-hmm. let me just encourage you, you guys can go to BibleInEveryLanguage.org, click on the Processes button, and go to the Sun tab, S-U-N, that's what you're looking for, BibleInEveryLanguage.org, um, click on Processes, and then you're going to go to Sun. I clicked on New Testament, and then I just clicked on uh, on the Gospel of Matthew. You can actually see what we are talking about. There's also tons of um, uh, of resources available on this website. So BibleInEveryLanguage.org. Um, talk about the progress that you've made. How long does it take to learn this language versus learning um, maybe a traditional language? Um, and, and then maybe tell us a story of somebody that's using it. Yeah, so uh, this this language, um, we've been working with it and working on developing it more um, since 2017. And uh, that's when we first took it to the field and said, does this concept even work with, with people? Um, and so we tested it. We've tested it in many, many other places. Uh, it's We've been to around 11 countries so far uh, just to teach Sun. Um, to different people groups, and it's been amazing, the reception that we've had. Um, We are currently working to translate the Old Testament. We've completed the New Testament, and we actually had our dedication back in February. And um, right now, there are about 80 core symbols um, that we, we have. So if you can learn those 80 core symbols, you can use those core symbols to then figure out the uh, what we call extensions or compound symbols. Um, and it takes about five days to learn those 80 core symbols. So when we go over to another country to teach, we plan to be there for a week. And during that week, we teach, um, we teach people who are working with the deaf uh, and we teach them the symbols and we teach them how to teach the symbols to the deaf and to the deaf and blind and to other people who may be able to use them. And so it takes about 80, or sorry, it takes about five days to teach this. 
And at the end of those five days, um, we actually have deaf people who can read and begin reading scripture uh, and read it and understand it at the end of those five days. So it's, it's it really just doesn't right. That's just so exciting. And it's opening yeah. the word of God to, you know, potentially 56 million people around the world who are deaf. It's just it really is just mind blowing. So the plan is to train lo- local churches in Africa, Asia mm-hmm. and South America to reach right. people in those places who are in this demographic to, to in- equip them uh, to reach people with the gospel, to open the word of God in a brand new way. Lori, it is so exciting. Uh, again, I'm going to encourage our listeners to check out uh, what's happening with the Sun program. Check it out at BibleInEveryLanguage.org. Lori, thank you so much for joining us today on Morning You're for Carmen. Welcome. You're welcome. What a delight. What a delight. We'll be right back. Be strong in the Lord and never give up hope. It's fairly unusual for a Supreme Court Justice of the United States um, to give public addresses. And um, Justice Samuel Alito gave an address last week at the Federalist Society that if you have not yet read, I encourage you to go and read it. Read it. Read the transcript or listen to the video. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, um, keynote address to the Federalist Society. Here are, here are a few things that he said, and I'm going to focus in on the religious liberty content of, uh, of his comments. These are the words of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. It pains me to say this, but in certain quarters, religious liberty is fast becoming a disfavored right. I want you to uh, let that settle in for just a second. This is not just some, you know, random person off the street uh, making comments because they feel somehow like their personal Christian faith is under attack in the public square. This is a Supreme Court justice of the United States. This is a member of the bench. Um, And so... Citing the Little Sisters of the Poor, you will remember them as the nuns who refused to allow their health insurance plan to provide contraceptives. Uh, Also citing Ralph's Pharmacy, a small uh, business, owners refusing to provide abortifacient drugs. Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop, you will remember uh, Jack, who uh, the owner there who refused to create a cake celebrating a same-sex wedding. So citing those examples, Justice Alito said... For many people today, religious liberty is not a cherished freedom. It's often just an excuse for bigotry, and it can't be tolerated, even when there is no evidence that anyone has committed, uh, that has anyone has been harmed. So what he's saying there is these people, uh, these Catholic nuns um, or these Christians who own a pharmacy or a cake shop, um, these Christians are being described as bigoted and their uh, their religious they are their exercise of their religious liberty in the public square being uh, regarded as um, as hateful even though no one no one is harmed by the decisions that they're making I mean who is harmed by Catholic nuns refusing to allow their health insurance plan to provide contraceptives I, who is harmed by that 
Um, and so this is a conversation that is being had, uh, at least in the heart and mind of Justice Samuel Alito. He went on to say, even before the pandemic, there was growing hostility to the expression of unfashionable views. So just consider just for a moment that as Christians, our views have become unfashionable. That, too, just as Alito went on to say, uh, is a surprising development. Here, Here's a marker for you. Now, remember, this is a Supreme Court justice of the United States. So the fact that he is um, laying down a marker in 1972 and using comedian George Carlin um, as his uh, as his reference, I think it demonstrates um, the breadth of thinking that goes on and the resources called upon by Supreme Court justices. They're not just reading dusty old um, uh, law tomes. All right. So here's what Justice Alito said. Here's a marker for you. In 1972, the comedian George Carlin began to perform a routine called The Seven Words You Can't Say on TV. Now, today you can see shows on your TV screen in which the dialogue appears at times to consist almost entirely of the seven words that George Carlin said could not be spoken. Carlin's list, uh, Justice Alito said, seems like a quaint relic. But it would be easy to put together a new list called Things you can't say if you're a student or professor at a college or university or an employee of many big corporations, end quote. Um, and he and he said, and there wouldn't just be seven items on that list. Seventy times seven would be closer to the mark. For those of you who are students of Scripture, um, you know the referent there. Judge Alito went on to say, or Justice Alito, uh, I won't go down the list, but I'll mention one that I've discussed in a published opinion. You can't say, you cannot say that marriage is the union between one man and one woman. Until very recently, that's what the vast majority of Americans thought. Now it's considered bigotry. Um, Alito went on to note that treating uh, the right to render worship to God as being as important as the right to gamble should not be called a, quote, tough call. So here he is referring to the decisions made across the country in relationship to shutdowns, um, again, related to the pandemic. He says, if you look at the Constitution, quote, you're going to see the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, which protects religious liberty. You will not find a craps clause or a blackjack clause or a slot machine clause. And that's a direct reference to states around the country that allowed casinos to open, but not churches. So what do we as Christians make of Justice Alito's comments? Um, Well, you know, these are felt realities for us as Christians in the public square. We have felt this. We have felt the pressure against religious liberty that is placed upon us by those who would um, assert rights not expressly uh, protected in the Constitution, but new rights that have been discovered uh, by those who would like to see, let's say, the LGBTQ cause advanced in the culture or abortion advanced as a right in the culture. Um, And we have seen religious liberty um, pressed down as those, quote-unquote, rights have been lifted up. Again, what do we make of Justice Alito's comments? Let me remind you of this. I'm a Galatians 2.20 person, and if you are in Christ, then so are you. We're already dead. It is now Christ who lives within us. And what could they do to Jesus that they haven't already done? Let me lift up this uh, to you today as well. What life are you living? Are you living your life? Or are you living the life that Christ now animates? And what is your life? 
Jesus uh, assured Martha after her brother Lazarus had died, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said, do you believe this? I think that's the intensely personal and poignant question of the day. Because if you believe this, if you believe that Jesus is the one in whom, uh, who has the words of eternal life, if you believe that uh, in Christ you are uh, not only going to live forever, but that you are going to live a life of belonging and purpose now, a life rendered unto God as an instrument of his grace and glory in this generation. Um, if you believe this, then the claim that Christ makes upon us um, means that it's not even about our liberty in the culture. Now, I'm going to fight. I am going to fight every single day for the religious liberty that is guaranteed in the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America. I also recognize it's under assault by a lot of other people. And so don't hear me saying that, oh, I just think we, we lie down and, and, you know, and allow culture to abuse uh, the expression of our faith. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying, though, that win or lose, we've already won. Win or lose, we've already won. All right, we're going to take one more brief break. We're going to be back to talk about what you're doing during Advent. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, so um, Advent is upon us. I don't know how to more clearly say that. Um, it starts a week from Sunday. And let me just uh, let me just say, you need a plan. You need a plan. And so let me invite you into um, our Advent reading experience. What are we calling it? It's just called an Advent uh, an Advent reading invitation. So go to MyFaithRadio.com, click on an Advent reading invitation, sign up to join us. Um, the Faith Radio team is going to take this opportunity to, you know, let Jesus just deeply soak into, uh, into our hearts and minds. We're going to use the Gospel of Luke. And so starting December 1st through Christmas Eve, we're going to be reading a chapter a day. Um, some of us are going to be piping into the conversation via some podcasts. Um, so go ahead, sign up. There's going to be some great extra content for you if you do so. Go to MyFaithRadio.com. It's the Advent Reading Invitation. Um, you need an Advent reading plan. Trust me. Um, it's, it's, it's where we need to be right now. It's where we need to be every day. So I guess I'll end with this. Where in the Word are you today? Be with us in the Gospel of Luke during the season of Advent. Are we got, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.